Well, this morning, uh, we get to close out Second Peter. And I've entitled it, A Call for Enduring Faith as We Wait. In our previous studies, we've been taught uh, regarding false teachers and false prophets and their destructive, antisonistic views so that as Christians, we should know and we should recognize their characteristics and their methods. How they masquerade as true Christians while openly teaching heresy, denying who Jesus is and his return. Peter has explained for his readers and he's explained for us today the depravity of the false teachers, the deceptions, the false uh, teachers that they are like a dog who returns to vomit. Or like a pig who, having been cleansed, returns to wallowing in the mud or the mire. You know, as I was preparing, I, we've been reading a book called One Foundation. And there's an article in there from John MacArthur. And I, I wanted to read just a couple paragraphs of for you because I think it really deals with our subject this morning. John says, When I began my ministry nearly a half a century ago, I fully expected I would need to deal with assaults against Scripture from unbelievers and worldlings. I was prepared for that. Unbelievers, by definition, reject the truth of Scripture and resist its authority because, as Romans 8, 7 says, the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. But from the beginning of my ministry until today, I have witnessed and I have had to deal with wave after wave of attacks against the Word of God coming mostly from within the evangelical community. Over the course of my ministry, virtually all of the most dangerous assaults on Scripture come from seminary professors, megachurch pastors, charismatic charlatans on television, popular evangelical authors, Christian psychologists, and bloggers on the evangelical fringe. The evangelical movement has no shortage of theological tinkerers and self-styled apologists who seem to think that the way to win the world is to embrace the theories that are currently in vogue regarding evolution, morality, epistemology, whatever. And they rename and reframe our view of Scripture to fit this worldly wisdom. The Bible then is treated like silly putty, reshaped to suit the shifting interests of popular culture. To make their attacks even more subtle and effective, the forces of evil disguise themselves as angels of light and servants of righteousness, just as 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15 speaks of. That's why the most dangerous attacks on Scripture come from within the community of professing believers. They are relentless, and we need to be relentless in opposing them, end quote. When I read that, it made me think of an old saying, and I'm sure you've heard it too, what goes around comes around. And we see it even more in our world today, just as it was in the world of Peter's time. Today we're going to close Second Peter. Before we do begin, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come to you, and we are so grateful that in your grace you chose us to know you in a personal way. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we close this great little chapter uh, on the book of Second Peter, Lord, that it would impact our lives in a great way. Lord, that we would walk in a manner worthy of you to bring honor and praise and glory to your name. Help us, Lord, as we read to understand it and to uh, apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please open your Bibles then to 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's read together then verse 1. Let's go back up here. Verse 1 and verse 2. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by wave of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Well, Peter now 
it's interesting here because he calls his readers once more beloved, a term of endearment. And in the NSAB, it's translated here that he's going to stir up our minds, up your sincere mind. He addressed them as believe, beloved and also in 1 Peter chapter 2.11. But why is that important for him to call us beloved? Because it's an indication that Peter accepts them then as genuine believers in Jesus Christ as their Lord. It means that they were not contaminated then by the world and its seductive influences, and they instead were in control of their lives through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And they are rebuking Satan's evil tactics. I know that all of us here this morning who are true believers would love to have the Lord himself call us his beloved. But just like Peter knows, and all of us Christians, we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded to have it impressed upon our minds again and again the truth of God's Word so that in our walk of spiritual growth and discernment that we won't become sluggards so that we'll be able to detect and refute false teaching. Charles Hatton Spurgeon said this, The purest minds need stirring up at times. It would be a great pity to stir up impure minds. That would only be to do mischief. But pure minds may be stirred up as much as you please. The more, the better. You know, it's fall, and football's on the scene, isn't it? Let me ask you, if you were a recruit for a major football team, and you showed up for fall practice, and on the very first day after practice, you went up to the coach and said, you know what, I, I'm not coming to practice anymore. I know everything you've got. I, I know everything you're doing. <laughs> How do you think that coach would react to that? <laughs> you think he might say, well, son, you just need to pack up your bags and go home then because you don't know the half of it. And, I, you know, when we look at Peter, I, I kind of like to look at him as kind of like our coach. The God has given him this the word and he urges us then through God's word that was given to him. And so Peter starts then telling us by way of reminder. And Peter is saying to us to remember. Beloved, remember, remember. But to remember what? He says to remember the word spoken beforehand. First, by the holy prophets. Now Peter uses the word prophets here and he calls them holy. He's contrasting then with the unholy false teachers that he's been teaching about. Peter is speaking primarily then about prophets who spoke of coming judgment. But what is a prophet? Well, a prophet is someone who speaks for another person. The English word prophet actually comes from two Greek words, pro, which means before, in front of, or in place of, and phemi, which means to speak. A prophet, therefore, is someone who speaks in place of someone else. For example... Aaron spoke for Moses. We saw that in Exodus 4. But here it's speaking of men who were chosen by God to speak His words to His people. And so before speaking to the people, God told them what to say. And they would acknowledge that it was God speaking and not them by saying words like, Thus saith the Lord. We see that in Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verses 17, 18, Moses speaking to the people, and he says to them, The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The same thing holds true in the New Testament. As Second Peter 1, verse 20 and 21 says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter then is referring to those prophets that have been chosen by God to speak regarding coming judgment. You can see that in the Old Testament, Daniel 7, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, etc. They were prophets both of, of judgment and of promise. In fact, in Psalm chapter 50, Verses 1 through 4, it says, The mighty one God, the Lord, has spoken. And summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him, and he, it, is, it is very temptuous around him. 
He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge His people. In the prophet Joel, the prophet proclaims not only the contemporary day of the Lord regarding plagues and droughts and other things calling people to repentance and to reform, but Joel also proclaims the day of the Lord, the Lord's divine judgment upon all the unrighteous. And so Peter says, remember. Remember the words of the holy prophets, but also remember Remember the, the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And so Peter, we see, is placing then the messengers of the new covenant, the apostles, on the same level as the messengers of the old covenant promises, prophets. You see, Peter understands then the authority of the New Testament apostles' writing, even as it's still being formed. And he's bringing this to his reader's mind and especially for us today, because we have the entire Bible. It's the closed canon of Scripture, and we need to remember. There are actually over 300 references to Christ's second coming, together His own, and warnings then about future judgment of the wicked and righteous. Peter knows this authority is vested in all of the apostles. It was not in just him alone. Let's continue then to read then of the mockers. Verses 3 through 7. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues, just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by this word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so Peter starts here now by reminding us that false teachers were going to be present in the last days. And he describes for his readers what these false teachers are up to, that they are mockers, they argue against the second coming of Christ. They ridicule teaching of Scripture regarding the return of Christ because they follow after what? Their own lusts. They say, where is the promise of this coming? And so when Peter says, knowing this, first of all, simply, he means that as Christians, we should not be surprised to find that there are those who scoff at the idea of Jesus coming again. And Peter told us, the mockers will come. They were there even then, and they were there at the crucifixion, and they are here today, folks. And this is the first thing Peter wants us to know, he wants us to understand, and he wants us to not be surprised. Once again, Charles Hatton Spurgeon says this, Every time a blasphemer opens his mouth to deny the truth of revelation, he will help to confirm us in our conviction of the very truth which he denies. The Holy Ghost has told us by the pen of Peter, that it would be so. And now we see how truly he wrote. Peter says this is the case that was happening in his time, and we know it's continuing in our time even greater. We must understand. We must be ready. We must be steadfast, not wavering. But we must be focused on our Lord and his promises to us, knowing that when Peter says these things, that they will come in the last days, the last days began when? When Jesus ascended into heaven. And since that time, we have seen how the world is rushing headlong into the future climax of all things. But as you and I run the course that God has laid out for us, determined for us, we need to be reminded and we need to be ready. And we are not to be walking as those who walk in the world who are walking according to and following after their own lusts. You see, they have a problem, don't they? And it's called sin. You know, it's sad today how many people claim to be a Christian, and yet they reject the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives. You know, a long time ago, I say a long time, wasn't that long, <laughs> Jeff uh, played a song for us by Frank Sinatra and said, I did it my way. 
Well, those scoffers, they continue today to say when they're confronted, they say it in a mocking voice, where is the coming? This is the message of a scoffer. In the mind of these mockers, they say, you know what? Christians have talked about Jesus coming for 2,000 years, and he still hasn't come back yet. They might also say something like, oh, come on, come on. I'll believe it when I hear it or when I see it. And so they continually say, look, all things are as they were from the beginning of creation. And so these scoffers who mock, they base their message then on the idea that things have always been the way that they are right now. And that God has not and he will not do anything. But he, and he's not coming back. And there is no judgment. That's their mindset. They would what we would have called at one time deists. It's what we might call today the doctrine of uniformity, which rules out divine intervention in history. Uniformity is the assumption then that the same natural laws and processes that operate in our present day scientific observations, they have always operated in the universe in the past and they apply everywhere in the universe today. Scientists today use what is called geologic events to get a window into past events as they believe that the earth has always changed in uniform ways and that the present is the key to the past. <laughs> By thinking that if men like Hutton became the father of geology, Darwin with evolution, in our day we see things propping up cropping up like global warming. And in verse 5 through 7 then, Peter calls our attention to the air of these mockers that they willfully forgot. They willfully got what? They forgot that the Word of God, the heavens, the earth, and man were created by the same Word of God. That the world that existed perished. It was flooded by water. So the Bible we see clearly teaches that the active agent in creation was God's Word. He spoke, and creation came into being. Genesis chapter 1. But they didn't just forget. It says they willfully forgot. They forgot that also the heavens and the earth which we enjoy are now preserved by the same Word that created it and are reserved for fire until the day of judgment of all ungodly men. The scoffers or mockers are presuming then upon the mercy and the long-suffering of God, and they say, oh, you know what, I, I believe in God. But they still insist that because they've never seen any judgment of God, there never will be one. And again, they willfully forget God's creation, the judgment of God that was poured out upon the earth during the days of Noah. And why is that important? It's important because a literal belief in creation, in Adam and Eve, and Noah's flood, they are essential for a true understanding of God's working, both then and now. To deny these things in God's Word, then, undermines the very foundations of our faith. And it's sad, but some things never do change, as there are many Christians today who willfully forget these things. Thereby, they put themselves in bed with the mockers. Peter wants us to remember the world that existed before Jesus entered. It was the world that perished. It was flooded with water and judgment. Why? Because of the wickedness of men. And Peter's driving home the point that things on this earth have not always continued as they are now. The earth was different when God created it. It was different after the flood. And therefore, no one should scoff at God's promise that he will make a difference once again when he comes in judgment. Judging it not with water, but with fire next time. You know, the same word of God that created all matter and judged the world in the flood is going to one day judge of fire, bring judgment of fire upon this earth. And so the lesson taught by the flood was that sin was punished in the past, and the sin will not forever go unpunished even today. Jesus himself 
used the flood to point to this time of judgment. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 39, Jesus is referring to this time, and he says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man be. But Peter says these false teachers, they have chosen to neglect these things. In 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, then we see the truth. The mockers deny, but God's people, we cling to it. Let's read it together. It says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, when Peter says that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day, remember what the mockers were saying? Where is the return of Jesus? Everything's the same, just as it was from the beginning of creation. And you'd have to admit, <laughs> for us, a thousand years, it seems like a very long time, doesn't it? <laughs> but for God, it's a very short time. It's just like... If you have children and you punish your children for doing something they shouldn't have done and, and you send them, you do it, you say, okay, you're going to be punished for an hour or maybe a week or maybe even if they're really bad, maybe a month or more. And it seems like, what, an eternity for them. They don't like it. But it's just a moment for us as parents, isn't it? So we forget then that God is the one who has established time for us. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday, when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. As I was studying, one commentator said this. He says, Time is nothing before God, because in the presence and the nature of God, everything is eternity. So there is nothing that is too long, nothing too short. There is nothing that will impair His purposes. All things are equal to his view so the distance of a thousand years before the occurrence of an event is no more to god than would be the interval for us of a day with god there is neither past present or future everything is in his sight just as we say today and we know we say god is everywhere what are we saying there we're saying that god is omnipresent and so peter is not saying here that a prophetic day is a thousand years because God views time with a perspective and an intensity that we can never determine. We, we just don't have the ability. We lack it. Well, next we see that even for us, though, the mockers and the mockers, it may seem that the Lord is taking a very long time to return. But in our hearts, we know that concerning his promise, the Lord is not slow. The truth is that God will keep his promise. And without delay, but according to his timing, not ours. You know, I remember when Penny and I first became believers and a couple of our children came about pretty close at the same time. All we wanted to talk about was the rapture of the church. We were so excited. We tried to anticipate when that was going to happen, what that might look like. But during that time, my daughter, who was almost a teenager, expressed to my wife, and she said, Mom, I'm hoping the Lord will not return until, until I have a husband and a family. <laughs> and I'm sure maybe your children have said that. Selfish? Absolutely. But understandable, isn't it? <laughs> and there are most likely many here who might feel that way even today. Maybe you're wanting your children to come to faith. Maybe your husband or your wife or relatives. You know, when we really think of it and we study the Scriptures, we understand the delay then is to the long-suffering of God. It's His patience that allows those who are chosen as much time as possible as He determines in order to repent. 
And so we see here there's a compassionate purpose in God's timing. Peter says in verse 9 that the Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Peter here has now revealed some of God's grace and his loving kindness for us. The reason why Jesus' return isn't sooner is so that for all to come to repentance, because God is not willing that any should perish. <laughs> Hard verse, isn't it? But we must not get misled by that little word, all, because it is not the entire human race, but those that God has given to his son, known as the elect. We understand that God is not willing that any should perish, but he is not saying here that he has declared that no sinners will perish, because we know that all who have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are going to suffer judgment. And that's bad news for you, if that's you today, if you're that person. But there is good news for you today, because the Lord has not come yet. And you still have time today. You can bend your knee in repentance, in your confession of, as a sinner, as the Holy Spirit calls you to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you will receive forgiveness, and you will receive the promise then of eternal life in Christ. And you can do that here today in the quietness of your heart. You can do it at home, wherever it's at. Just, I pray that that would be the day of your salvation. So Peter's statement then reflects God's heart of love, not only for the elect, but for the world also, for his creation, just as John 3.16 states. And his, this shows then the compassion and sorrow that God has even in the righteous judgment that's coming for the wicked. All those who are sinners, they must pay the penalty of their sin. All who have rejected the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11 says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. We also know from Scripture in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18, uh, 18 to 23, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And we see the results of that then in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. And it says, and although they knew, they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give heartily approval to those who practice them. Peter goes on then in verse 10, telling us that the day of the Lord will come as a thief. You know, even though the Lord's long-suffering, His steadfast love for the, lo for the lost makes it seem that perhaps he is delaying his coming. The truth is he is coming. He will return. And when he does return, he will come at a time that's going to surprise many. He comes as a thief, like a thief in the night. And it also speaks of that in Matthew. You know, it seems today, doesn't it, doesn't it, that you hear and you see everywhere you go about a new world order coming? I just recently listened to a guy talking about NATO. NATO wants to create a one-world government as early as next year. And actually, when you think of it, we're living in the second world order. We're living in the one after the flood. But brothers and sisters, a new world is coming. A new world order is coming. One that Christians, we can hardly wait for it. We're going to love it. But it's not going to be that way for an unbeliever. 
You see, when this new world order comes, it's going to come like a thief. No one is going to be expecting it. And Christ will begin His reign after that time of the seven-year tribulation. He will begin His reign of a thousand years. However, the ultimate result of His coming will not even be then. It'll come after the millennial kingdom, which is one of total destruction of the present world, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise. The elements will melt, melt with fervent heat. You know, most commentaries agree that we just don't know if Peter is actually talking here about the second coming of Christ and his millennial kingdom, or if it's talking at about the end of the millennial reign, the millennial reign, sorry. Either way, Peter is now admonishing us. Now is the time. Be ready. He's coming. And he wants us to know then how we should be living in light of the last days. And God's promise. Let's read it together in verses 11 through 13. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what sort of people should we be? In other words, in light of the fact that this world order and the things associated with it will be destroyed, how should that affect who we are today, right now? Wow. It's not a question. Instead, it's a proclamation he's making, a challenge for us to listen up, take heed that as a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it means that even though we are in the world and in the last days, we must remember we are not of this world. We are just passing through it. And in light of that, then, we should be living our lives seeking, first, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It means we conform our lives so that others see Christ in us. Or as to paraphrase Colossians chapter 3, we are to be seeking the things above, not the things here on earth, and in verse 5, it actually tells us in chapter 3 of Colossians that we are putting to death in our members the sin that so easily entangles us on our bodies here on earth. Things like fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And because it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, all those who are dis unbelievers. And these are the things in which you and I once walked. And Paul said it. Peter wants us to live it, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, as a new creature in Christ. We tend to think sometimes the world is more enduring, that it's going to last far, far longer than we, any of us can ever live. But folks, that's not true. It is in a physical sense. But Peter is reminding us as Christians, that's you and me, I hope, <laughs> whether as a believer or an unbeliever, we're all going to live into eternity, much longer than the earth. God even here is telling us in many other scriptures that the solar system, all the great galaxies, all the elements that make up the physical world are going to utterly be destroyed by heat, and they will melt away. I guess you could, if you really wanted to, call it global warming in a sense. But remember, our souls will gain new bodies, and they will exist forever. Some in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, but others who are unbelievers in torment in hell forever. We also see what is said in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation. We get a picture there. And it's an astonishing vision that Daniel and the Apostle John had concerning the, the day of the Lord, a future time of judgment. And it's actually going to occur twice. You say, what? Well, the first is after the tribulation, the sheep goat judgment. The second will be at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment. And so this world, as far as we know, 
will be drastically changed even during the millennial reign of Christ, but it will not be destroyed. However, after Christ's reign, then the day of God, the earth will pass through purifying flames. The earth will in its entirety be destroyed. Christ will create a new heaven and a new earth. There will be in this new heaven and new earth, it will be where righteousness will dwell forever. And so what manner of person should you and I be? Let me put it this way. You all agree the king is coming. He's coming to his throne. He's coming for his judgment. Now, if we know that, if we know the king is on his way, and almost here, it appears to us, could be, that he's almost at our door, what manner of people should we be? How do you want him to find you? Well, we should be looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. As, and God, as Peter says, there is a sense in which we can hasten the Lord's coming. Now, hasten just simply means we are to eagerly desire it. Eagerly desire it. In the immediate context, Peter says that we hasten or desire the coming of the Lord by our holy conduct and our godliness. Holy conduct means then living a life separate from sin. With, while godliness is referring to our reverence or our love of God and Jesus, which together then permeate the entire attitude of our hearts and it's the love that we have for other believers. But there's more. We can also hasten the Lord's coming through evangelism. And Paul said when he was speaking in, in uh, Romans, he said that God's prophetic focus on Israel will resume when, but not until, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. As it says in Romans eleven twenty five. 25. Well, until here refers to a specific point in time. The fullness is referring to its completion. Has come in is coming from the Greek verb hiko, speaking of coming to salvation. And so we can hasten the Lord's coming by evangelizing and witnessing of Christ as he draws those elect to himself. We can also hasten the Lord's coming through prayer. Even as Daniel asked for a speedy fulfillment of prophecy regarding Israel's captivity, remember that in Daniel 9? We can also pray then, as it says in Revelation 22, verse 20, where John prayed. You remember he just seen this terrible visions that, that God showed him about the destruction of the earth and the plagues and all that's coming through it. And how does he pray? He says, even so, come Lord Jesus. You know, we need to live that way, expectantly, desiring it, because one day the heavens will be destroyed and the earth. In the day of God, Peter tells us that the very elements of the world will be destroyed. Also known from Scripture, though, that it will be a time when God will make a new heaven and a new earth. As Isaiah promised in Isaiah 65, 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. We also see it in Revelation 21, that this will be according to God's promise of a new earth in which righteousness dwells forever. That's the most glorious characteristic we can have of this new heaven and a new earth. That is the place for which righteousness dwells. Think about that. There will be no more sin. No more problems. Righteousness will dwell. You know, a lot of people think the millennial reign of Christ will be a time in which righteousness dwells. And in a sense, it will be. Because only believers will initially go into the kingdom, and the millennial kingdom. But think about this. As they repopulate the earth for a thousand years, the children they have still have a sin nature. At the end of that millennial kingdom, Satan will be released for a short time. And during that time, millions upon millions upon millions of people will follow him once again. But this time it will be for destruction and they will all be cast into hell. Known at the great white throne judgment. You see, in God's plan of the ages, it happens after the millennial kingdom. 
ruled by Christ, but it's also the time of the recreation of the earth as described in Revelation 21, verse 1. He says, Now I saw, John speaking, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, if you're here this morning and you desire more of what that home is going to look like, I, I would encourage you to read all of Revelation 21 and 22 if, where it talks about that. But as we close, Peter's admonition to us this morning, let's read then verses 14 and 15a. As Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Looking for these things, he says, be diligent. You know, if our hearts are really set upon the glory of the new heaven and new earth, <laughs> how's that going to affect us? Well, it means we don't fear then the day of the Lord, which is an eternal state where we should be eagerly waiting for and expecting it, hoping for it. And if that is our hope, then we will strive now to walk in a godly manner in order to con in order that we can conduct ourselves with peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ enjoying the peace of Christ with no fear no worry about the day of the Lord coming in judgment and in regard to our life of godliness it should be an example of, of of without spot and blameless which means our character then our reputation it should be blameless others see us that way we also see then that the patience of the Lord is salvation. You know, it's easy for a Christian sometimes to think, kind of, kind of resent the fact that, that God's not coming yet. yet. Because of the things in the world, they seem so bad. Just, I wish he'd come. But it calls the long-suffering of God. And it, the patience or the long-suffering of our Lord, it says, is salvation. But it's salvation for others. Now think about that, because long-suffering of God brought salvation to me. It brought salvation to you. Many of us regarding salvation would like to probably be more like James and John, sons of sons of thunder, who would most likely have just wanted to call down fire from heaven on some of those that reject Christ. And if you think about it, if that had been the case, where do you see yourself? And probably millions and millions of others who would not have been saved. Well, let's continue reading then in verses 15 and 16 regarding the letters of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as in all, also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter now is calling Paul beloved. Beloved. He's affirming then Paul's teaching in the warmest of terms. He calls Paul beloved and said that Paul wrote with the wisdom that was given to him and that he has written to you concerning these things. Now, if you remember back in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, Paul had publicly rebuked Peter for compromising with the Jews. And yet Peter now has been forgiven, and he now sees Paul as a beloved brother. Peter regards Paul's epistles now as among the rest of Scripture, a term applied to Paul's writings which are divinely inspired. The canon of Scripture has been written for us. It is closed. Our Bibles are the complete Word of God, and it contains everything we need to live a life in godliness. Well, Paul, by this time, has probably written most of his books, or all of his books, actually, in the New Testament. And, and many of the people had received them, had received his writings. And he says, uh, regarding the future things that Peter's warning them of in his letter, but Paul has most likely been killed by this time. He was beheaded, martyred. And Peter is now using Paul's writing to support his own teaching. And he admits that some of Paul's writings contain some things that were hard to understand. Even though Peter praised Paul's ministry, he admits 
Yeah, yeah, they are. Some of them are hard to understand. But he's not saying here it's impossible. It's impossible to interpret. No, it takes work. It takes study of the scriptures. But the problem was that in those days, and even for us today, there are some who are untaught and unstable people who will not take the time. They won't take the time to learn how to study or probably most of them have not even been called by God to teach. But they use the scripture. They add to the scripture for their own interpretation and thus they are distorting or twisting scriptures. By using that term distorting the scripture, Peter reminds us that the scriptures can be distorted. And they can be twisted, just like the devil twisted scriptures when he was tempting Jesus. Remember that? So just because someone can quote the Bible does not mean that they can teach biblical truth correctly. To twist means to distort. They force unbiblical meanings upon the Word of God. And that's why you need to be like the name of this class. Be like a Berean who searched the Scriptures daily to find out if these things were so, as it says in Acts 17, verse 11. Peter says, these kind of people who are unstable, untaught, they distort Scripture, and it is to their own destruction. He's being very firm here. The action of the false teachers in distorting and twisting Scripture to justify their own liberalism and the rejection of the second coming of Christ he is so serious as he's saying they may not even be saved. It's to their own destruction. Well, let's continue then as Peter gives us in verses 17 and 18 the conclusion. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter is saying, since you know this beforehand, that's you and me. We know about the day of the Lord is coming. And we should be eagerly awaiting it with expectation. But until then, we must persevere. We must take care. We must continue to keep abiding in Christ, standing firm, unwavering in our faith so that we will not be carried away by the errors of these unprincipled men in which they will lead you from being steadfast. We must therefore be on guard and continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ just as Peter told the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. He says, not that I have already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, wrenching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that's a warning for us. Press on. And we press on then to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, grace is not merely the way that Christ draws him to himself in the beginning. It's also the way we grow, the way we stay in our walk by being steadfast. We can never grow in our relationship with Christ except through the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And there will never be a time when you'll grow out of God's grace. Spurgeon said this also, In order that they may know how to stand and to be preserved from falling, he gave them this direction, Grow in grace. For the way to stand is to grow. The way to be steadfast is to go forward. There is no standing except by progression. And so by growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ means we can prevent a fall from our own steadfastness by a continual growth in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Means then we will not be carried away by every wind of doctrine. So that just as Ephesians chapter 4 verses 14, 15 says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful skimming, scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. Remember, Scripture does not say that grace grows. It tells us to grow in grace. God's grace never increases. It's always the same. It's infinite. It's everlasting. It's bottomless. It can never be more. It can never be less. And so Peter closes our letter to us by saying to us and all of his readers, to him be the glory. You see, when we are growing and we're steadfast in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, it gives God glory. One last quote from Spurgeon, and I'm not going to put it on the screen. He noted this second letter of Peter ends on two trumpet blasts. He said the first blast is from heaven to earth, as God tells us, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second trumpet blast is from earth to heaven. To him be the glory, both now and forever. And then he ends on this one little word, Amen. However, that final word is not included in all the manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts of Second Peter. And yet it is appropriate here because it means to affirm what Peter has been telling us, to affirm the truth in face of the danger of these false prophets and the mockers. And I believe everyone here this morning would agree in saying amen to what he has written to his readers. So what can we take away as application from our study this in Peter? We need to be pressing on, to be diligent, to be patient, and to be on guard. You know, Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. In 1 Timothy 4.15, it says, he says, Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And when we do that, it will lead us then to be Bereans. Be Bereans. You know, the Bereans, they didn't just simply accept each doctrine that they were taught. Instead, they studied the Bible for themselves to determine the truth of each doctrine that they had been taught, as Acts 17.11 explains. And Brothers and sisters, remember this, that if you're a redeemed child of God, even though you go through fiercest storms of this life, even if you may stumble or, stumble or fall, we pray that you won't, but he will hold you fast if, he, if you belong to him. Because if God's for us, who could ever stand against us? You know, as I always like to do, I, I pray that you will stand with me this morning and we'll close out our time together by singing a song by City of Light that speaks of this great God of ours. And it's called, If Our God Is For Us. <clears throat> he says, We won't fear the battle, we won't fear the night, we will walk the valley with you by our side. You will go before us, you will lead the way. We have found a refuge only you can save. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. 